You're listening to Plain Label Podcast, Beer Breaks. Hello and welcome to our second episode of the Plain Label Podcast, Beer Breaks. I am your host, Eric Williams, and just to recap, in case you missed our first episode last week, what we're doing here is we're taking a director, a screenwriter, an actor, a movie theme, or a movie genre, and we're having a series of discussions on that person or group. Joining me for this first filmmaker is my good friend and movie lover, Mr. Sean Stengland. Hello again, everyone. And once again, for this first series of shows, we're taking a look at a few films from director David Fincher, and we'll be on, focusing on his treatment of serial killers. Now, last week we discussed the film Seven, and this week we're discuss, our discussion will center on the film Zodiac. Before getting into our discussion, I would like to mention that this podcast is brought to you by the Deliberate Noise Network. Head over to DeliberateNoise.com and check out some of the other shows that are over there. So, Mr. Sean, as we just mentioned before recording, we don't have any blue beverages to drink <laughs> in honor of the show, but what is it that you're having to drink this evening? Uh, nothing fancy today. I am having a Leinenkugel Summer Shandy, because it's already out. It's not summer yet, but it's already out there. Um, I, I definitely will hit, pick that over the other new Leinenkugel Shandy product I saw, Watermelon Shandy. <laughs> I saw that you also, you didn't, you didn't, <laughs> you were not pleased with the watermelon and grapefruit next, next no, to each other there. The grapefruit, okay, I could kind of see, but watermelon? I feel like that's going to be really light, because watermelon isn't a real strong flavor. No, but I don't, in any event, is it, is it a flavor you want in your beer? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, they've made like apricot beers and blueberry beers forever. So. I guess watermelon just seems like a bridge too far, man. <laughs> I feel like you're gonna have to do one of those mixed six packs and at least throw one in there. Your curiosity is gonna get the better of you. Just for the the good of the country. <laughs> That's right. It'll be one of those days. As long as it's better than my one uh, ill-advised experiment when I went back to Corona and didn't buy limes, oh, and it was no. so bad. The Corona was so bad without a lime that I actually put some lemon, uh, some lemonade crystal light in it to try to make a Corona shandy. <laughs> Guess you... what? That didn't work out <laughs> I was either. Say, that does not sound promising. Did you, you didn't put, uh, you didn't put any salt in it? No. Oh, uh, see, I should have done that. Yeah. Put a little salt, tip it upside down, and then after about 45 minutes after it settles down <laughs> again, then you can, <laughs> you can drink it. <laughs> Oh, I did that to my uh, brother-in-law one time. I was like, yeah, 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 just put the corona in it, and flip it upside down, and I was like, put your thumb over it, mm -hmm. and you can drink it. And he sat there forever and was just really pissed at me. <laughs> so that's good times. Um, I am having, I decided to go with kind of um, a drink that is more in vogue now than I think it has been for a little while, but I'm just going with a plain Dirty Martini. Oh, nice. Yeah, I figured it was a little old school. And uh, it is just Svedka vodka, a little, just a little bit of olive juice. And I did put the olives in there, and I'm going to try to eat that with the <laughs> mute on while you're talking. <laughs> so that, that's the plan, anyway. 
so with that, I think we are ready to begin our look at uh, David Fincher's return to serial killers with the 2007 film Zodiac. Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek. Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. How does one do that? I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Lana said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at the gun range? I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually. First class. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, God, say it was there's no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? You have him seen with the ciphers, the military boot prints, the bloody knife. All circumstantial. Why do you need to do this? Because nobody else will. Dave, you made a mistake! Get away from the window. Paul, are you okay? No. Why'd you do it? You put your face out there for him to see. Hello? Who is this? Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. He's still out there, Dave. Killing is his compulsion. It drives him. It's in his blood. Jeez. What? Squirrels. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have a gun. I can give you a lift to the service station. Do you always go around helping people in the night? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? And the IMDb plot synopsis goes like this. A serial killer in the San Francisco Bay Area taunts police with his letters and cryptic messages. We follow the investigators and reporters in this lightly fictionalized account of the true 1970s case as they search for the murderer, becoming obsessed with the case. Based on Robert Gray Smith's book, this movie's focus is the lives and careers of the detectives and newspaper people. Says, <laughs> And again, those are just random IMDb uh, plot synopses that I pick. Uh, they are not always uh, the, the most well-written things I've ever read. Uh, so they, I uh, end up having a little bit of trouble with that sometimes. So... Sean, let me uh, let me start with you uh, before I get into my complex history of this film. But <laughs> uh, obviously, we're fans of David Fincher. Um, this is twelve years, twelve years, I believe, after Seven. Yes, that's correct. Uh, tell me what you initially thought when you first saw this film. It was quite an experience. I saw this. It came out in February of 2007, and in March of that year, it was still playing at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. Cinerama uh, this, Dome. Yes. This is, 
this uh, so this was a time when I was trying to maintain a long distance relationship with someone living in California, and I live in the Chicago suburbs. Wait a minute, 2007. This is uh, this would be right around when we met, I think. Yes, I think that's true. Yeah. Okay. So the Cinerama Dome is is what it sounds like. It's a giant dome that has a a screen that is so big that it wraps around the dome, like the it the screen actually curves to fit the dome, um, which is kind of weird, but it's so big. And I guess those they have those curved TVs now. What I'm getting at is I saw this on a giant screen <laughs> in California at like midnight. Mm. A lot of the audience wasn't into it because I mean this is a procedural mm-hmm. of uh, that's like the a, a big point of this movie is is showing you all the steps no matter how mundane or frustrating. But for me, it was like I was like under a spell for two and a half hours. Interesting. To 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 just kind of feel the vibe of the of the night air in L.A. after watching this movie was just kind of creepy. Hmm. Um, you know, I considered it one of the better movies of that year, and I kind of went gaga for There Will Be Blood later that year, like everybody did. But this is the one that I keep coming back to from all the movies. 2007 was a great year for movies. Then this is the movie I keep coming back to. Interesting. Now, this is a film, before I get into what I thought about it, that you and I have sort of bantied about for a while, that we were going mm-hmm. to we're going to talk about this eventually. And when I first saw it, I just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I saw it, and I just didn't understand. And I think part of the reason was because I had this, it had this label of David Fincher's Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And so I think about it, and I think of David Fincher, and I think of the sort of more stylized Seven, Fight Club, that sort mm-hmm. of thing that's going to be this sort of really, you know, like hyper-stylized visual treat, visual treatment of the Zodiac murderer. Mm-hmm. And we get that beginning shot, which we'll talk more about when we start talking about the film. We get that beginning shot, and it's uh, we've got some really interesting angles and a few angles that are kind of repeated from seven uh, looking mm. up the barrel of a gun and that. Sort oh, of thing. right. Mm. And I'm like, okay, yes, this feels familiar. This is like, this is what I'm, you know, I know what I'm in for. And the movie does turn into a procedural and it starts jumping through a long sections of time. And it starts focusing on different people as you're, uh, main protagonists, you know, it keeps uh, jumping between the three mm-hmm. main leads, and I was just baffled. Like I just didn't, <laughs> I just didn't get the excitement for it. And I, it's not that I didn't like the film, but I just didn't appreciate it the way that everyone else seemed to. Mm-hmm. And that was the only time I had seen it up until seeing it for this recording. And after seeing it for this recording, I feel like I finally got it. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we can talk a little bit more about that. But let's talk about first, um, what do you think, I guess, why do you think David Fincher does what he does with this film compared to what he does with 
a film like Seven. Because that one's also a procedural in a way. Right. But it's more like, here's how movies show things. And then Hmm. this one, I felt like this is how things actually are. Well, I feel like looking back at it now, this is kind of clearly the beginning of the second act of Fincher's career. Hmm. Um, I think this movie, if you look at Social Network and um, Gone Girl, they feel more in tune tonally with this movie than they do with Seven or Fight Club or certainly Panic Room. (laughs) Yes. Um, And I'm sure he had trepidation about doing another serial killer movie because he didn't want to, oh, he's going back to the well after Panic Room or whatever. Um, So I think it, it called for a different style. And I think in in doing the legwork, he probably saw this is an opportunity to not not just this isn't just a serial killer movie. It's I think I actually think of it more as a journalism movie than a serial killer mm-hmm. movie. And it's unlike any journalism movie I've ever seen. It's a it's a it's this is a unique film, and it's an epic film in the true sense, in like the scope of it and the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. This movie asks you to invest a lot of time and a lot of thinking and a lot of emotional weight into into this case, into the lives of these people, and then but then not give you a concrete resolution. And where am I going with this? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe well, I don't have a concrete resolution. <laughs> but um, I think this movie is the movie it needed to be if he was going to te- take on another serial killer movie. It couldn't okay. be as stylized as seven. I just by nature of the story and that it's a true, it's a true case. Um, and I think the killings need to be more matter of fact, like the, the killing at Lake Berryessa is oh. one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. In the movie. Ooh, now yes, that, that is rough. Yes. And on the rewatch, it was much worse than I remembered. Cause I was just like, Oh, Oh no, there's this, this dude. Yeah. And like, uh, Mm. It's so matter of fact about it. And like the way it's shot where it's just kind of like this regular medium shot when you're seeing her getting stabbed in the back and it's just, there's nothing. Well, there's no heightened. There's nothing fancy about it. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's weird because it's like, it's as unshowy of David Fincher as I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I'm so used to this this visual element and here it's just the middle of the day, which I never think of daytime in David Fincher. Right. I always right. think of like, night. <laughs> I always think of night or rain <laughs> um, except for the end of seven, which we talked quite a bit about last week. Right. But mm-hmm. I think of that sequence. And if you're teaching someone a, how to shoot a scene in film school, this is not what I would think you would teach them hmm. because it is so kind of bland. Yes. But, but when you have something, I guess what I think he's going for there is you have something so horrific and you're showing it in a matter of fact way, which makes it mm-hmm. more, even more horrific. Yes. You're having this like idea of, it's almost like it's just a handheld shot and everything's medium and they're not quite in frame like they should be. And mm-hmm. it's just, um, intentionally amateurist is what I wrote down. Intentionally amer- amateurish. Sheesh. I feel like I've been having, <laughs> a, uh, it's like I read for like an hour and I feel like I've been having drinks all night. 
Um, <laughs> so I think that that was, that was really interesting. And I think that when I had the first viewing of it, I was like, well, what, is, what is this? Like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. You gave me the stylized stuff already. Like, why are we not going back to that? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it, it's should be said, it's not like there isn't stylized or heightened camera work in this movie. He goes back to the, what I kind of call the digital garbage camera from Fight Club. Mm-hmm. Remember that shot in Fight Club where it's like deep inside the garbage can, it pulls back? Yes. And then later there's all this stuff of like going up, up and down the side of the building at the end. I mean, he does more of that stuff in here, particularly when it follows the cab mm-hmm. and the, the camera turns perfectly with the cab. It's all, it's all put to effect to give you this sense of foreboding through the movie that I, this sense of dread that maybe the, that the movie needs because for a lot of its running time, it's just these workaday guys trying to work this case, but there's always this sense of dread hanging over it. And part of it is how he stages these, uh, kind of God's eye cameras. There's the time lapse stuff where it shows the, uh, is it the transcontinental building being built? Um, and it, you know, the case took so long that they built this, this landmark building during it. So. Yeah, that was one of those where I was like, hmm, I'm definitely from small town Nebraska. I don't know what that <laughs> building is. <laughs> uh, but I think that, you know, it's, it's the, it's like the guy that knows what he's doing to the point where he doesn't have to show off as much is what I felt mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Because he can, you know, he still has opportunities and he still has moments when he's, He's using the camera in a way where the audience is looking and like, ooh, look at that. That's cool. I think he is mature enough to, at this point in his career where he's just letting the story tell the story instead of his camera mm-hmm. tell the story. I want to talk about, I guess, the overall. You were, you mentioned how it's an epic story, and it that is much different than what we had in 7. Right, yeah, which takes place in 7 days. Right. And so here this is, you know, years. And... I want to talk about the way that the different characters are handled because mm. what I think was frustrating for me the first time was that I kept searching for the Morgan Freeman like knows more than everyone else mm-hmm. and is a great guy and is just the sort of prototypical movie hero mm-hmm. in a procedural film and you know there was no like real wisecracking. I mean, there was Robert Downey Jr., but he was more sad than mm-hmm. anything watching him, you know? Um, but there was no Brad Pitt that was just this young upstart that needed to be knocked down a peg because he didn't know everything. Mm-hmm. You know, there was none of that, really. What did you think? Like, how did you appreciate or not appreciate, or what did you think of the way that the main characters were handled in this? I definitely identify the most with Graysmith, partly because, I mean, I am, I work at a newspaper and I think great, through Gate Graysmith, um, with his obsession with it, for me it had the effect of, I wanted to try to solve the case with him to the point where even after I had seen this movie already, I had a, I had a period of time where I would watch this on DVD over and over again for like a few months after it first mm-hmm. came out. Where I would be like, even though I've seen the movie and I know that it's just a movie, I was like trying to watch the movie and comb it for clues to see if I could say definitively who did it. Mm. So 
And I think that's a that's a testament to how well Graysmith is drawn and performed by Gyllenhaal, that he kind of brings you along on that journey. The one that I've always had a kind of gone back and forth on, and don't get me wrong, I love him, but it's like I don't understand why Mark Ruffalo felt the need to affect a voice in playing mm. Tosky. Yeah. And I go back and forth on it because like, okay, he wants to be true to this to this guy, and he's trying to mimic this guy's manner of speaking. But this is not a famous guy, you know. It's not like everybody watching if he just talked like Mark Ruffalo, people are like, oh well, David Tosky had such a distinct voice. But nobody knows who David Tosky is. <laughs> right. Maybe they did then because he was tied to their Dirty Harry in some way. Mm-hmm. But. Even though I think it's like an affectation and totally unnecessary, he makes it work because he's Mark Ruffalo. So, and you like him so much in everything. Yeah, he he's very earnest all the time. Yeah. Yes, and then you you you've got Downey, who this is like a, a dry run for the entire career that would follow this. This is right before. This is the year before Iron Man. Yeah, this we actually <laughs> in our in our previous. Uh, on our numbered shows in our sort of uh, discussion on comebacks, um, Rachel and I had discussed Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. with, uh, and we selected the movie Sherlock Holmes mm. uh, rather than this because I knew you and I were talking about this, and mm. then we had already talked about Iron Man. But this 2007-2008, I mean, he was everywhere. Yeah. You know, and with high-profile films, and it was just kind of like, Holy shit, here's Robert Downey Jr. and he's excellent <laughs> in all of these. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of, you know, I keep waiting to see if he'll do something different. I mm-hmm. feel like he's not. Like he's just kind of playing a variation on Tony Stark in every movie, but maybe that's because he's just playing a variation on Robert Downey Jr. in every movie. Yeah, really. You could say that. <laughs> you say the yeah. same thing for like uh, Sean Connery or any, any like figure well, yeah. where it's just like a guy that's just being himself. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, so earlier when you were talking about Jake Gyllenhaal, mm-hmm. here's my issue. I don't particularly like Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie. Okay. And the reason why is I couldn't figure out, and this fits into what you were saying about Ruffalo, I couldn't figure out what he was doing. Hmm. And I was watching it because I was thinking for a while as I watched the film, is Graysmith supposed to be autistic? I can see that, yeah. Because there's times where he's playing him like he's on the spectrum, mm-hmm. and then there's times where he's just Jake Gyllenhaal, I felt like. Yeah, I remember, I think the first time I saw it, I thought, well, is he like kind of dumb? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if like he not was... just not on the spectrum, but like is like just like truly just kind of a dim guy. Oh, mm-hmm. but and so I mean, but maybe you know maybe that's part of it. Like there, maybe you're not supposed to be so sure of him, and it, it's kind of a way for the audience to question him. He's kind of presented as like the ultimate authority in the end of this movie, and uh-huh. he wrote the book. So maybe this unsure quality of the performance is like a wink like well you know this is just one guy's opinion yeah because i don't know it did give me a little bit of an unreliable narrator sort of a thing because mm, yeah i was like well i mean at times he seems really sort of ocd and very uh like antisocial and locked in his mm-hmm. own head kind of a thing yeah and then there's other times where i felt like well he's just kind of an awkward dude yeah like you know 
And I just, I don't know. I was just, I, I like Jake Gyllenhaal, but I just didn't know. He just doesn't strike me as awkward, I guess. Like in, in the movie that I wish would just go away and Donnie Darko, he, <laughs> he is awkward in that. But by this time in his career, he just doesn't like, he physically doesn't look awkward enough to me. Yeah. Oh, I can see that. I wonder if their and if their goal with that performance and it worked for me is just pure obsession. And you know, no matter what is happening, he can only be focused on the case and that kind of helps drive you through the movie when maybe you're getting bogged down by all the minutia. When it's like, no, no, but this is all important because we have to figure this out. No, let me ask you this. I hope I'm making sense. No, no that by makes the way. sense. Yeah, that makes <laughs> <laughs> if you lose me, I'd say, I don't I, I, right. say that. <laughs> Let me ask you this, though. What do you think the movie would be like? And this is really funny that this got brought up uh, between the two of us already today. But <laughs> what did you what would you think if instead of it being Jake Gyllenhaal, what if this was Jared Leto? As the main <laughs> character. And I say that because I think he's genuinely more of a weird person. And so when he would be playing this kind of odd guy, mm-hmm. I would, I feel like I may b- have believed it more. Huh. He's just weird. Well, and you know, it's an interesting thing to bring up given that, you know, Jared Leto was in Fight Club too. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I want, I wonder if he was considered for this at one point. Was he? In, oh, he was in Panic Room too. Yeah. So yeah. Fincher had worked with him the last two movies before this. So I don't know if that's like maybe a studio note, or maybe Fincher just wanted a a bigger name or something. But you know, because Gyllenhaal's the lead. Yes. And Jared Leto with those two other guys in there. I don't know if. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal wasn't the biggest star in the world when this came out, but he's a much bigger star than Jared Leto is. Well, yeah, I think Jared Leto was probably off. Busy being a rock star at that point, uh, too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean that that guy is so incredibly all over the place. He is. You know, I he gets a lot of crap. I think he's actually a pretty good rock star, actually. As mm. silly as that sounds, oh, he's a good rock star. But I think he's pretty good at that. I think that band's pretty good. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm not supposed to say that because I'm not uh, 18 years old with pink hair and I don't know. <laughs> In your heart, you are. Well, yes. <laughs> I feel like I don't know what Jared Leto is anymore. Mm. And I, I mean, that's val- certainly valid. He, <laughs> and it's hard its hard to wrap my mind around what he would have been in this movie. Yeah. But he certainly, I wonder if he would have gone too far into the weird. See, that could be. that, And, you know, that's when you get him and his weight loss and his mm-hmm. weight gain. And the reason he got brought up was Rachel and I, again, recently did a, a comebacks film and we did we talked about Matthew McConaughey. Ah, uh, there you go. We talked about his serious turn and if that was indeed a comeback or if that was him just actually giving a shit about movies finally mm-hmm. instead of yeah. just instead of just dicking around and making money. <laughs> you know. Um and so we had talked about how that was the performance that I was struck by because I didn't realize that it was Jared Leto in that cross uh, in that transgender role. Mm-hmm. Until the movie was almost over, and I was like, "Oh, really?" Yeah, and I was like, "Holy shit, is that is that somebody? I, that's Jared Leto." <laughs> and I was dumbfounded by it, and then I looked it up and was like, "Oh, of course, that's what he won his Oscar for, and that's why people don't like him." And 
you know. Well, people have a whole new reason not to like oh, Marvel. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, they do. Why so That's, serious, you know, Sean? I actually kind of feel bad for him for all that. Well, because, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to make apologies for his behavior where he, you know, allegedly was sending like dirty condoms to his castmates on Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they sold that movie to the public as this is the movie about the Joker. Mm-hmm. And then you go see it and the Joker is in the movie for less than 10 minutes. And I, and I get the feeling from everything I've read that Jared Leto didn't know that that was going to be the case either. So. But anyway, that's a very far, uh, <laughs> we, did, we are we... so far afield from the discussion <laughs> at hand now. Like, I, that's kind of our specialty though, isn't that it? That is true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so getting back to Zodiac, so I don't know, I just think that I have a problem with, with Jake Gyllenhaal just in that I don't know what he was trying to, to go for, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, it just seems like it was a little scattershot for me. And if that's intentional, I don't see how it connects. Hmm. And it just seems like a miscalibration of of some sort. And that could just be my own hang-ups with Jake Gyllenhaal himself. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. So that's, so that's one of the, the few issues that kind of remain. What, let's see, so we talked about the, the characters and about how, you know, they're much different from Seven to, to mm-hmm. this film. What about the actual, uh, let's go a little bit more into this. What about the actual murders themselves? What do you think about that in comparison? Well, I think it's it's the thing I was thinking about with the murders before we recorded is how this movie has three murder scenes. I think that's correct. Yeah, I think you're right. And the Zo- yeah, the Zodiac only had three three murders. And yet it's it's still this famous thing. Mm-hmm. To the point where people were calling a presidential candidate the Zodiac killer last year. <laughs> um and oh, it, it's poor a, Ted. you know it's yeah, and it's inspired all these other movies and books, and it drove Robert Graysmith insane trying to figure out who did it. And it's about three three murder sites, and that's that's nothing compared to other serial killers. But there's something about this case that lingers on, and I I guess it's probably the cryptograms that do it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think it's it's actually you know that the the Berryessa stabbing is is terrifying in the way that it's filmed and and just when you think about how it was done obviously but it's the it's the threat of what else this guy could do coupled with the name and the symbol and the cryptograms it's you know this this actual killer had a real sense of showmanship not in his killings like John Doe John Doe's killings were were <laughs> were very spectacular in how they were done mhm and in the message, but Zodiac was kind of all message in in how uh, his reputation carried on. What do you? Think? And I just think that's interesting how this guy who, I mean, you know, as we're keeping score with serial killers, he's not going to make the Hall of Fame, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he, uh, you know, it's still very much in the popular culture. Yeah. What do you think of the fact that in Seven? We don't see any of the murders, and then in this film we see, uh, we see two of them, right? Yeah. Well, we see no, we, we see three we, of them. I guess that yeah, because we have the Barryessa and the the opening scene uh-huh. with Michael Majot. He survives, but the the woman he's with does it, and then the cab driver. Oh, and the, the cab driver. That's right. Yes. 
And it is, that is odd when you think about it, because, you know, in Seven, it serves the purpose where they don't want to give away the identity of the actor playing the killer. That's mm-hmm. one one pr- thing that it serves. I think another thing is in Seven, the murders are so grisly that yes, yes. they couldn't even fathom showing them, especially the lust killing. Mm-hmm. You have to show the killings in this, I think. Well, and where I'm going is, and what I think is interesting is you have in Seven, like you said, these these horrifying scenes, like these settings are so mm-hmm. remarkable, all of the settings for the most part. Right. Whether it's the way that they're lit or the way that the, like I'm thinking of the lawyer's office with just with the blood on the carpet, you know, that right. kind of thing. Most of them have some kind of an interesting look to them, but you don't see the murder. Right. And then in Zodiac, you have pretty traditional areas, pretty yeah. standard-looking things, and you do see the murders. Yeah, kind of, it's more effective to actually see it happening in yeah. an idyllic or mundane setting. Yeah, and so they're like, they're opposite sides of the same coin, to where one, it's, you know, this heightened, horrific thing, but you don't have to, you don't see the murders, and so that makes that scarier, because you don't know who the identity of the person is, you don't know what they're like, they could just right. be this crazy, over-the-top person, and you wouldn't know, and then here, we have just this, no, look, this could just happen. Like, you could just be yeah. outside and someone could just mm-hmm. come up and murder you. Well, and maybe just from your basic storytelling point of view, if you showed any of those murders happening in Seven, it would be so grotesque to put off the audience, but then also I think it would just stretch credulity. People would be like, mm-hmm. well, Dick, you could never do that. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody could. Nobody would actually do that. But like, then if you just see the <laughs> aftermath of it, it's more believable. Yeah, like imagining the the time lapse with the guy strapped to the bed. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, fuck uh, building the building. I mean, we're going to have a time lapse <laughs> of this dude. Yeah. <laughs> Whittling away. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think that that's interesting. It, and it's one of those where, I mean, in in any sort of director, I think you can create some different... Uh, things that they're doing, whether they are, mm-hmm. are meaning to or not. But I just find it interesting that this is the second time he's gone to the serial killer sort of genre or the serial killer movie, even though I think I'm on the same page as you, is it's more of a it's more of a police procedural and a journalism film than it is really about mm-hmm. the serial killer. It's more about yeah. like how the killer affects everyone else. And in that way, it's the same as Seven, because it's more about how that affects Morgan Freeman and, and Brad Pitt. Well, yeah, ultimately, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's uh, a little bit of a similarity between the two. So I don't know. I don't know what I think about... Uh, I don't know what, if I... I guess I appreciate the way that they... I, I, I appreciate the way that David Fincher chooses to show the violence on screen and not show it in this mm. film. You know, because I like the fact that they didn't bring the score in really heavily and really zooming tight on the hood of the Zodiac before mm-hmm. he shoots or something like that and you know and really make it kind of lifetime channel quality. <laughs> if that makes sense. If people understand what that reference is still <laughs> with the thousands of channels out there. Well, yeah. You talk about the score, I think this movie and 7 both have it in co- in common where the score 
is really invisible, and I think that it that works for both of these movies. The score is more ambient, or it's not showy in any way. Um, the only thing I can think of where in either of these movies where the where I can remember what the score actually is is just those really heavy, foreboding tones at the end of Seven. Oh yeah. And whether those are deep strings or brass or whatever, I can't even tell. It's just like this heavy pulse at the end of Seven. And other than that, the score for both these movies is really invisible. Yeah, I think of Seven and I think of the John Doe's in control. And like that sequence. Yeah, John Doe has the upper hand. <laughs> yeah. And I think about that, just that end scene with the, with the, in my mind I, is the sound, right? Right. It's one of those where mm-hmm. sometimes I, I return to a film and I'm like, wait a minute, there's no music there? I could have, like, in my memory, there is, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I, I watch the film, I'm like, whoa, this is slightly different than what I thought. Uh, one of the things that we kind of talked about, mostly on performance, though, was the character of Robert Downey Jr. What did you think of the portrayal uh, of the of this newsroom in the 70s and then of this lead investigative journalist? Well, the newsroom portrayal is more accurate than most to me. And I think they had to rebuild those offices. So it's not the actual offices. I think it's a set, but I feel like a lot of times in movies, the newsrooms, there's, there's cubicles and offices everywhere, but this is just like a big room with a bunch of desks. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel like the newsroom is more accurately portrayed than most in this spotlight really gets it. Cause they're filming it in the Boston globe. Yeah. They're actually filming it there. I mean, it straight up looks just like my office at the Daily Herald in suburban <laughs> Chicago. Um, but yeah, I, the, the newsroom portrayal, even to the fact where they use some terminology that the public wouldn't know. Um, like in the, they go into the page one meeting and, uh, the editor, John Terry, who was, uh, Jack's dad on Lost. Yes. Um, says we have to replay. And it's like, wow, that's something nobody knows outside of, if you don't work for a newspaper, you've never heard the word replate probably basically that they they used to you know the pages used to be on these big plates and uh they could the like every story would have a plate and you would sub it out for another plate when you had to put a new story in basically mm. i can um, tell i can tell you with a 100% accuracy that is not something that is taught in journalism classes yes not anymore <laughs> <laughs> no not anymore in the in the uh in the virtual land of newspapers no no and, no just and, just uh just go in there control c control v you're good yep exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody has to learn about paste up and composition. Oh shit, anymore. no, just hi. <laughs> this is how InDesign works and just paste it in there, you'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um and uh, you know, there I don't know anybody uh at my paper who has quite the idiosyncrasies of uh, Robert <laughs> Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery here. Are you but, you're, you're um, trying to tell me that uh our are both of our our former roommates he uh, doesn't have this sort of copy editing flair like this. No, no, I wouldn't hmm. say so. Okay, well that's disappointing. <laughs> it it is um it is kind of comparable. It, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is in another newspaper movie. He plays uh, Steve Lopez in The Soloist too. Yes, he does. And I don't know. I, I assume they filmed that in the real L.A. Times offices. That was a pretty good portrayal of a newsroom too. Hey, yeah. there are there are movies that get it right. Not <laughs> like Never Been Kissed, where uh, uh, oh, in Never Jesus. Been Kissed, 
Drew Barrymore is a Sun Times <laughs> copy editor who has her own office. Oh God! I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> here's what I here's what I'm waffling between. I don't know if I'm more disappointed that you brought that up or that I know the reference. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's like I'm disappointed in both of us equally. <laughs> so yeah. So I think that what is interesting about that character, though, the way that uh, that Avery is, he seems like, okay, he's going to be the one that either suffers physically mm. or solves something is the way that he's sort of, uh, placed in the narrative at the beginning uh-huh. of the film, you know? So I'm like, okay, uh, I remember watching this the first time going, well, Robert Denny Jr.'s character, he's way too overconfident. He's going to get himself <laughs> in the middle of some shit. And then he's going to end up paying the price, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the way that my – I'm in a Hollywood film sort of mind uh-huh. would would work. And then when we lose him for a while in the film, and then he comes back only when Jake Gyllenhaal needs him and we see that he's a drunk and he's basically <laughs> um, unemployed. And Yeah, it ruined him. Yeah, and he's, and he's ruined <laughs> – and it's only that one scene and that one bit where Jake Gyllenhaal asks him if he's okay mm-hmm. and Robert Downey Jr. does his Robert Downey jr is, <laughs> you know, and it nods his head for a long time and then says no quietly, mm-hmm. right? That's the only real bit where I actually felt like this was affecting him mm. and... I get that people are like that to where there's a defense up all the time and they they use humor or they use sarcasm in some way or they mm-hmm. turn to alcohol or they turn to whatever else to not let things affect them or to stress them out too much or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I just didn't feel like it was hitting him this hard to where I get that, you know, I understood that he was um becoming more and more of an alcoholic and using drugs and that sort of thing but i just never felt like it was weighing on him as much as i thought i was going to see like mm. because even though he acknowledged that people were kind of out to get him it seemed like or it seemed like the zodiac killer was going to come kill him and all that stuff you know mm-hmm. and i kept waiting for some uh, gravitas, I guess, with that character. Except, I think we get it, but it's only in that in that one scene on the boat. Well, yeah, he. I mean, yeah, he does disappear. Mm-hmm. It does. You know, I'm kind of. I'm kind of wondering now. Could you do this movie without Paul Avery as a character? He kind of pushes. He 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 nurtures Grace Grace Smith's obsession in the beginning. And he does provide a few, a few key pieces along the way. But I wonder if you could do this movie and just have it be about Grace Smith and Toski. It just seems like Avery, he's a colorful character, and I think the movie benefits from having that personality in it. But it, yeah, but when you talk about how he really does disappear, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's one of the things that I felt was a little frustrating the first time around was that my sort of uh, like stick up my ass film critic type (laughs) view of it the first time was 
is is the movie intentionally wandering between these narratives because it's too true to the story that Gray Smith mm. um that he wrote because otherwise it's like well what is who's our focus our focus isn't the zodiac killer because we don't end up seeing who that is it's right. not i mean is it Gray Smith okay yeah it is but then for a while it's Mark Ruffalo's character and then for mm-hmm. a little bit it's it's uh Robert Downey Jr's character so it's like well I, okay, so it's an ensemble then. Well, not really, because then some of them disappear for long stretches of, at a time, and then all of a sudden, towards the end, it's a it's a Gyllenhaal movie again. And I don't so know. Like, I guess well, I've, I've always thought of it as Graysmith's movie. Okay, but just the sheer, you know, by by showing the sheer breadth of the story, you know, you have your times where Toski and Avery take over. But I I, I think I've always thought of it as Graysmith's movie. And then I think part of my issue then is since I don't, since that performance doesn't resonate as much with me, mm. I watch it and I wonder, I just can't help but wonder if he's supposed to, like if he's obsessed, I don't get that he's obsessed enough. Like I get mm. the, I get the results of him of being obsessed, but I see him as, I, I watch him being obsessed and I think that he's, uh, either dim or autistic. <laughs> or on the spectrum. Yeah. And mm. so I watch it and I'm like, well, he's just got OCD really bad. Like, he's just trying to figure this out because he likes these puzzles. Right? And it, and it's like, well, I have, I've taught kids that have the OCD and you put a puzzle in front of them and they're just not doing anything until that's done. Mm. You know? And so I'm like, is this, is that just this guy? Okay. Well, then. You know, his his wife, his spouse needs to figure out, hey, look, I have this condition and I am going to obsess on things. Sorry. You know, mm. I can't control it. And then and so I don't know. And so that's that's, you know, reading into that. And I'm not trying to disparage Graysmith, the real person, by saying that he's right. autistic or something. But I just um, I don't know. I just didn't know what to think about that main performance and so i didn't know what to think of the main narrative i guess well is it possible i wonder if you wouldn't be hung up on that if and i don't know if this is the case if you're if you were more interested in the procedure of it oh maybe because if you because if you don't if you don't share the obsession and and get into the minutiae then maybe you're that's why you're kind of looking at the performance but i don't know see because i i it's hard for me to separate Gyllenhaal from the minutia because it's all about the whole movie and his whole performance is about the minutia. Yeah, that's true. And, and I like the minutia. I like I I like all the the detail this movie goes into. It's what it's part of what makes it unique. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what I was maybe hoping to grasp onto was the actual procedural like working of the case mm-hmm. in the yeah. actual like the crime scenes maybe or the yeah. you know because they they do spend quite a, a good amount of time and they have an excellent scene later that we'll talk about here soon um with one of the suspected uh killers <laughs> right mm-hmm. um but w- when they go to the different crime scenes and they're working the cases i guess i felt like I wanted more from that. And I think okay. that that's, that's a story issue, not a movie issue. 
because mm-hmm. it's like, look, no, there there was just these people and they were shot or they were stabbed and there there's no like smoking gun to find. There's you know, well, there's no yeah. like grassy knoll to to wonder about. Well, and so that's oh, yeah, just which how is the part of the goes. whole frustration of the thing yeah. too. And so it's that, just like <laughs> So I think I was one of, on one of the the few folks that was that was feeling the frustration of the officers. Mm-hmm. But rather than being like along for the ride, I was like, no, like, get like, <laughs> where's the evidence? Like, give me more of the evidence. Give me more of the mystery. Like, yeah. I was in that that frustrated camp. And and what's nice is watching it the second time. And I can't imagine watching it, you know, more times. The more I would, I could see myself like falling into the film more, like what you're describing mm-hmm. earlier. Is that yeah. I watched it the second time, and I kind of know what I'm in for and mm-hmm. I'm not trying to force it into like a seven. I'm not trying to force it into like another movie. I'm just letting it be it. Mm-hmm. And that was much more rewarding for me when I wasn't trying to like, no, 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 this, wait a minute. <laughs> Where, where's the murder? Where's the, this, where's the investigation of that? Where did Robert Downey Jr. Go? You know, yeah. I was, I was doing that or, well, where's the, where's your leads? Where's your other suspects? Why do we not have them cracking? Why do we not have them? Why is this not figured out? You know, yeah. I felt more on that side, like with the cops. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk, I want to talk about, uh, the, the very, I would say famous scene with the sort of prime suspect, I would imagine from the, the Graysmith book anyway. Um, it's when we go to work. And I forget the I forget the plant or wherever whatever that's called, mm-hmm. the the job site where they go to, and we meet the guy that they think is the murderer. He's um, it is uh, John Carroll Lynch is the actor, but it's Arthur Lee Allen is who he's playing, and he has the sort of walk that the Zodiac is described as having, and he's got the watch that's Zodiac brand. And he's got all of these things that kind of go along with what the uh, investigators are looking at. And I want to know what you thought of this sequence. Well, it's John Carroll Lynch just puts on a clinic in that scene. Mm-hmm. He it's he has to do so many things in that scene because he first of all he has to leave an impression on the audience. In some way, you have to you have to come out of that scene thinking something about him one way or the other, mm-hmm. and you have and you have to be interested in him and remember him because he's going to be important later. But he also can't come off as a monster because then it's too obvious. But he can't be he can't be too far in the opposite direction because then it's too obvious for the other yeah, for other reasons. Yeah, he can't seem innocent. Yes, so he's got to have this, he's got to strike this unbelievable balance of weirdness, but normalcy, but menace. And he's got just like these little things he does with his hands and his face that are just mm-hmm. off kilter. And they cut back to like, um, Elias Codius and, um, Anthony Edwards. And they're both, they're, they both kind of have these puzzled looks on their faces because, they don't know what to make of him either. Um, it's I love that scene. 
Yeah. See, now this this is my favorite scene of the film. And I think that this is the film where I watch, or this is the scene where I watch it, and I think, okay, this is movie making. Because this mm. is a little bit, it's shot in a, in a way where it's a little bit more than than your regular investigation. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like the camera angle on Lynch is a little lower. Mm-hmm. And so we can get that shot of him playing with his watch a little bit. Right. And what I like about it is, and I think this is really strange, because the more I think about this movie, the more I'm marveling in what it doesn't do. Mm. Right? Because I'm thinking about, okay, if we're in a bad version of this movie, we zoom in really tight and we, again, blare some music <laughs> and it says Zodiac in the middle of that watch. Yes. And we get mm-hmm. the symbol, right? And it's very obvious. And then we have reactions from the cops, mm-hmm. right? That's what I would think is some asshole director, like a McGee or something. That's <laughs> Wow. McGee. There's a name I haven't heard in a while. <laughs> so that's what I would think of his handling of, of, of a scene like that. Mm-hmm. And instead, you just get this medium shot, and like I said, I think it's a little bit lower of an angle, and you have this sort of dance that everyone's doing. And mm. the police and everyone else is real sure that this guy, is some, something's up with him, he's just a little odd. And John Carroll Lynch is just, I mean, no disrespect meant to him, but he's a strange-looking guy. And yes. he just looks like... And a, he's, he's mined that for a lot of work. <laughs> yes, he has. And he just comes off as like something's not right with him. Mm-hmm. I think that Goose, by the way, Anthony Edwards, that we haven't really mentioned before, <laughs> I really enjoyed him in this film. I thought that yes. their, their little dynamic was really solid. I don't know. I just think that that is so well done because as the audience, you don't really have anyone to place the oh that's it on right right and so we see this guy we know he's supposed to walk in a certain way we know he's got Mm -hmm. all of these really sort of like obvious signs like okay would the actual zodiac killer wear a watch that had zodiac on it (laughs) i mean that seems a little convenient Mm -hmm. that seems like if he's really that hard to find that seems pretty clear you know like that, I wouldn't have killer written on my arm or something. <laughs> right. You know? And so it just seems like it's an interesting sequence where you're kind of, it's real fluid whether you think it is or it isn't. And, um, I just think that that's really expertly done. And what's, and, what also, what's also nice is I can show that to my mom and she could not be thinking of anything and just take it as a normal scene and be like, okay, that, yeah, that was good. It's fine. Whatever. Yeah. You know? I um, that's a scene where I would love to see a documentary just about the shooting of that scene. Yeah, and ta- or, and given that Fincher is has a uh, reputation now, like Stanley Kubrick did, of shooting things over and over and over again, that seems to me like if there's any scene in this movie that they spent like a week on, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. the scene. And so many, you know, so much coverage they had to do, and I think there's a lot of inserts in there too. Yeah, it makes it, it would make me think that it's that scene, the Downey 
breakdown scene mm. and the uh, Graysmith going to the dude's house. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Those would be the ones where I'm like, this seemed like this took a long time. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't think, you know, the the stories of the opening scene of Social Network were famous before the movie even came out. I don't think there's anything in here that probably took that long. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just... Um, it's stuff like that. It's the scenes like that that you don't think of for David Fincher that are what make David Fincher a great filmmaker. Yeah, because I feel I, like I don't think he, of David Fincher as a as an actor's director. Right, exactly. But he manages to get good performances from everybody that he works with. I mean, we don't yes. count we don't count Alien because that's that wasn't a David Fincher movie. Right? No. But I mean like Gone Girl, that is a complete actor's movie. And that movie, its I mean, it's almost entirely dialogue scenes. Well, and they're all dynamic and interesting, and they all had to be a real pain in the ass for everybody involved to shoot. You know, I just and remember... it works. I remember Gone Girl, my wife sees that, and she goes, Ben Affleck, huh. He's pretty good. <laughs> like, like who knew? You know, she yeah. just was like beside herself. Couldn't believe she was saying those words. Mm-hmm. It's like, huh? Isn't it a shame that when that when the news came not so long ago that Ben Affleck was no longer going to direct himself in the next Batman movie? Part of me was like, you know, it sure would be awesome if David Fincher made a Batman movie with Ben Affleck, but you know. I wouldn't mind seeing I wouldn't mind seeing uh David Fincher take on something where he's allowed free reign in a in a really like spectacle based movie. Mm-hmm. And then also if that uh the ill fated Darren Aronofsky Wolverine movie would have got made. Yeah. Well, you know, David like Fincher was gonna have his spectacle. He was supposed to make Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea for Disney, oh, but yeah. it just oh, didn't yeah. happen. I remember that now, yeah. But and when they first announced Star Wars Episode Seven, oh god, I was like, it would be the greatest <laughs> thing ever if David Fincher made this. But I think we all knew who was gonna make that movie. That would be like, <laughs> that would be like, oh man, what if Stanley Kubrick did Return of the Jedi? You know, there was that's or like David that. Lynch. Yeah, David that's like Lynch that was actually thing. attached to it at one point. <laughs> mm. That's crazy. I didn't know that. That's craziness. Oh yeah, well, and Dave, David Fincher worked on Return of the Jedi. And David Lynch did. Uh, I mean, he did Dune, and that was a pile. Oh my god. <laughs> people, if people want to listen to that, I did. I saw that, and I finally saw Dune start to finish for the first time last year or the year before. Oh, I was awful. like, I have to sit down and force myself to watch Dune, and I really wish I hadn't. Yeah. <laughs> if uh, if people are curious, um, <laughs> a long time ago on the podcast filmographies, I did a David Lynch filmography with uh mr cameron rice and i believe that's still available on the feed if people want to check that out and they can hear us talk about all of the david lynch movies wow uh what is uh this is a brief aside but what in the world is david fincher doing now besides mind hunter mind hunter mind hunter is his return to the serial killer genre but it is a tv series 
Oh, yes. I've, okay. I did hear about that. I should know what David Fincher is doing. You know what he's doing, Sean? He's not doing anything right now. Wow. <laughs> I mean, he's doing the TV show. I think he's probably, he must be executive producing it also, or show running Yes. It. But I'm sure he's going to direct the pilot and then abandon it after Yeah, that. it looks like he's got three that he's doing. He's doing oh, wow. one, two, and ten. So the first two and the last one, probably. Hmm. But yeah, that's that's all that he's... That's all that he's confirmed on doing. If you look at his IMDb page, it says rumored and announced that he's doing the World War Z sequel. I find that really hard to believe. Yeah, that's... No. (laughs) I don't think that movie's even going to happen. I think (laughs) I read somewhere that that's been canceled altogether. It's like, I don't think that you get... (laughs) I mean, a moderate hit and all, but I don't think that you get... David Fincher to do a sequel of a zombie film. No, and you know, and he's not doing the Dragon Tattoo sequel either, which is apparently happening. They're gonna they're gonna make a movie about the fourth book that was written by somebody else <sighs> because the guy who wrote the trilogy died. So they're gonna they're, allegedly they're gonna make no, that. Movie. No, 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 no. But I don't, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't think that's gonna happen either. But well, I mean, if Rudy Mara and Daniel Craig are still under contract, I mean, what the hell? <laughs> I feel like we're gonna have many thoughts on this next week, on that film, and on the. Oh, I guess I won't call them the real versions. I'll call them the original versions. <laughs> <laughs> I'll save it at that. Well, is there anything like is there anything that we haven't hit yet on Zodiac? This is what uh, what I will say about this, Sean. Is even though I feel like I'm coming across fairly negative, I don't know if I'm just being a devil's advocate or what, or just talking mm-hmm. about my initial um, issues that I had with it. I took so few notes during this because hmm. I was watching it and was kind of just transfixed. Yeah, and was just watching it and marveling at the hmm well that's interesting well i wonder why they did this or oh look at that that's kind of cool or you know and just was at the and i think you said this earlier at the minutiae of it all mm-hmm. of just the all of the exquisite detail of making a period piece film and have it having it you know anel asked me when we're watching it she goes when did this get made i said uh at the time, I was like, I don't know, like mid two thousand. She's like, Oh, it looks like it was made in the seventies. I go, Well, the story, yeah. the story was in the seventies. It's supposed to look like that. And she's like, Oh, okay. So she was, you know, completely sold. Well, yeah, this is another one of those. Uh, Fincher is known for this. He has become known for this. Where this movie is filled with digital effects, and you don't even know it because they he uses digital effects as set dressing. And you really, there's not many shots where you can tell. And there, it's done very well to augment the period and sell the period. Hmm. So I appreciate that stuff. There's a whole, I know if you get the director's cut DVD or Blu-ray, there's a whole thing just on how they shot the crime scene at the cab. How basically every direction you know, every at 360 degrees that was on location, so everything around them looked modern. So they had to augment that entire shoot with CGI, that mm. entire scene. Wow, crazy! Um, so that's like one of the little one of the little things about this movie that I like. It, uh, the casting, casting, the casting in this movie is great. 
because you've got these three showy leads in varying degrees of showiness. Mm-hmm. But then all these other characters, and there are a lot of characters, the, every all these actors have to make an impact, and some of them just have like procedural dialogue. So it all comes down to who do you cast. And you cast familiar faces, whether whether you know their names or not, or you cast people who have a strong presence. And all these supporting characters that show up, it's it's just like a murderer's row of great character actors. Well, like we mentioned, Jack's dad. Yes, Jack's dad. But then you got like Dermot Mulroney. Yes. Who, you know he's t- had plenty of bigger parts, and he he plays a cop in uh in the Homicide Division. Uh, you got Donald Logue, who's been on t on our TV for twenty five years. He shows up <laughs> as a detective. And... One of these days, he's gonna get a show that hits. Yeah, one of these days. <laughs> oh, Grounded for Life was on for a while, yeah, but I know. you know, I don't yeah. know if anybody it, it was watched that. by just enough people to stay alive. Yeah. And then, you know, like the great Philip Baker Hall shows up. Yes. And oh, yes. uh and Brian Cox as the as the weird T V lawyer. Right. And you Oh yeah, that that was really fun seeing that character. That was <laughs> I really enjoyed that. <laughs> He like kind of he, he feels like he kind of comes in from a totally different movie altogether, oh, he does, but yes. it gives it gives those scenes a weird energy that the movie benefits from because you need something different. <laughs> what I do like about that though is that that screams seventies to me. Mm, yes, because everything is of just kind of one note for a while, and then we just have yeah. this really eccentric dude. And it's just like, oh no, he's just eccentric. And now he would be so categorized, and so you know, <laughs> he's a certain thing if he was if it was in a modern deal. But in the seventies, like, no, no, he's just a little different. It's whatever. Yeah, he's yeah, like you know, they go to his house on Christmas, and they have the the big ass light bulb uh, yep. Christmas lights, yep. and it's kind of gauzy looking, and it's just like it's a nice little departure. I and don't know. We have and pure, uh, in very seventies. Yeah, we have. <laughs> Uh, Chloe Sevigny as well. That's right. Uh, as the, as the Gray Smith wife for a while. She doesn't get, she doesn't have a lot of scenes, but I mean, she makes the best of it. That's she, what she does. That's what she, she does. always does. Yeah. And she, again, is, uh, she's a little, int- she's like interesting looking. Yeah. He, it's funny that this is coming up. Before we recorded, uh, American Psycho was on HBO tonight. And, uh, it's one of my wife's absolute favorite movies. And we're watching it, and, and it's the scene where he takes, where, where Chloe Savigny comes over to his apartment and she's in like the evening dress. Oh, yes. And my wife says, I don't know if I find her attractive or not. Mm-hmm. And I say, nobody does, honey. It's one of life's great mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it, I, it, I feel bad saying it, but it's true. She's just kind of, she's, she's, I don't know what to say about her. She's, she's memorable. That's for sure. She's mm-hmm. distinctive. <laughs> she works a lot. Too. She works a lot. And she does, she is unafraid to do anything as she proved in that movie with Vincent Gallo. <laughs> yeah. The brown bunny. Uh, I don't know I, if you kids out there know about the brown bunny, but uh, Chloe Savigny does something on screen that's usually reserved for xhamster.com. I mean, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> the, the what? The what? Yeah, the uh, what now? <laughs> I remember seeing her. The first thing I saw her in was, oh, was uh, Palmetto. 
Did you see that movie? Oh, wow. There's a movie I haven't thought of in about 20 years. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Woody Harrelson earlier. Uh, and she was supposed to be like the teen seductress. Mm, that's right. And I remember watching oh. that going, wait a minute. There's Gina Gershon and Elizabeth Shue, and this is like the late 90s. What is he doing fooling <laughs> around with this little skinny girl? I was like, I don't, <laughs> I don't really get it. <laughs> that was probably the first movie I saw her in too, because I don't think I saw kids until I was in college. Yeah, because that's the first movie she was in. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was. But yeah, she did Palmetto. I mean, she's been doing, and she, you know, of course, is in Boys Don't Cry, and American mm-hmm. Psycho. Not too so, not too long after, and yeah, she works several times every year. And she's uh, part of the Ryan Murphy company now too. She was uh, very good on American Horror Story. On a couple seasons, which I have to mention, uh, the first episode of American Horror Story Freak Show mm-hmm. has has a concrete reference to the Lake Berryessa scene, and the person doing the killing in the scene is John Carroll Lynch. Oh, is that right? Yes, John Carroll Lynch plays a murderous clown in American Horror Story Whoa. Freak Show, and he kills two people in a scene in the in the premiere of that season that's very much like the Lake Berryessa scene. Whoa. So they they actually have a lot of Fincher uh, references in that show. American Horror Story Hotel had a lot of Fincher stuff in it too. So that when I when I saw that three or four years ago, whatever, like they're doing Zodiac with Zodiac. <laughs> <laughs> Are you do are you going to uh watch the the election version? Isn't their next season election? That's what they say. I don't know what they're I don't know if that means they're actually gonna do the election or what, but after last year's uh experiment with found footage and meta horror uh that I shut off halfway through, mm. I don't know. Mm. They kinda lost me last year and I don't know. We, I feel like uh, Ryan Murphy's heart isn't in it anymore. He's got too many other things going on. We watched the premiere of Feud tonight with uh, oh, uh, Jessica Lang. And... Yes, yeah. Jessica Lang and Susan Sarandon. And I, I feel like that's Ryan Murphy's top priority right now. <laughs> was, it, uh, was it as trashy as it seemed to be? Actually, that uh, it was like uh, People vs. O.J., I was surprisingly not trashy. Okay, so let's talk about People vs. OJ real quick. So okay. I, <laughs> I am not quite done with it. Okay. Um, I came across it because of a true crime podcast that I listened to. Mm-hmm. And they had talked about how they were watching it. And when I saw the previews and I was like, oh, wait a minute. Cuba Gooding, David Schwimmer, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think so. Right. Right. And so then when they talked about, no, 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 it's good, especially after the first episode or two, they're like, then it really gets, gets going, finds its, its footing. And I'm like halfway through with it and I can't stop watching it. It's, it's one of the best things I've ever seen on TV. And I couldn't, I can't believe that I, uh, that I'm so attached to Johnny Cochran. Yes, that's one of like, the great masterstrokes of I was it. Like, he's so good. <laughs> that that show in concept has everything going against it, because it's like we should all be tired of hearing about that forever. You know, I lived through it and I was tired of it then. I mean, I was a kid, but still, and the potential for that to go campy or trashy is so high. 
and then but you can you also can't play it totally straight because it was a I mean it was a circus and they just nailed it all right so let's go ahead and end the show there if you have any comments suggestions or movies that you'd like to hear us talk about you could email us at plainlabelpodcast at gmail.com you can follow the show under the handle at plainlabelpod where you can follow me i'm at Eric Williams 79 that is of course over at Twitter. We also have a Facebook page and an Instagram account. Just search for Plain Label Podcast and you will find us there. If you wanted to help us out a little bit, you could head over to movienoise.com and there you're going to find our episodes posted and if you click on the full description, you'll find links to our Amazon wish list, our Amazon shopping link where we get a little piece of what you spend over at Amazon and it doesn't cost you anything. And uh, we'll have our link to Audible. And you can get something for free just by signing up. So I do want to thank Sean once again for coming on and discussing yet another David Fincher film. If people wanted to hear more from Sean or get in touch with him, they could find him over at Twitter under uh, Sean the Diz Nerd. And that's Sean spelled S-E-A-N. So thank you for listening, and we will be back next week with our final look at David Fincher and his take on serial killers with the movie The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo.
Rolling, 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 rolling. 